Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. We take remixes for granted these days, but in the 70s, a handful of DJs and engineers were literally putting the form together with their own hands. The Bronx-born DJ John Morales was one of these early splicers, making extended edits and medleys at a time when he found most tracks too short to work well on his sets. Cutting his teeth at Bob Blank's Blank Tape studio and gaining fans like disco uber producer Patrick Adams, Morales embedded himself in New York's music world, and as the 70s rolled into the 80s, he grew ever more in demand for his eminently club-ready tweaks of everyone from Holland Oates to the Rolling Stones. Along with his partner Sergio Munzabai, he established one of the top remix brands of the era, the Eminem Mix. Morales spent some time out of the game over the last few decades, but in 2009, BBE released the first of three compilations of Eminem mixes, which turned the spotlight back on his considerable contribution to dance music. Around the release of a new Motown-focused collection of Eminem retouches, Stephen Titmus sat down with Morales at our office in London. So your first break, John, was working in a record store. How did that all come about? It just came out of just casually, every day the record store was in the route from school to home. You know, we always had music in the house and I would walk in because back then they had all the 45s in the wall and you could, you could listen to them. And I would go in just 10, 11 year old nosy kid listening to music and uh, one day the owner said, he said, listen kid, he says, do you want a job? And I'm like, what do you, you know, job? I said, I'm freaking 10, 11 years old. And he says, no, no, he says, every day after school, he says, just come from three to five and just sit over here and make sure nobody steals anything. And he says, we'll give you 10 records on Friday. So I was like, three to five, 10 records, you know, so went home, told my parents and, you know, they figured it was better than having me in the house. So um, I would go in and during the week I'd listen to all the records people were listening to, and I'd start making my little stack, you know. So, and I had an advantage because I'd be able to take something that was really hot and put it to the side so they wouldn't run out. Uh, the only problem I discovered was that at the end of the week, I was spending all my lunch money because my stack was more than 10, you know. So I'd have to either put something back or, you know, he'd say, okay, if it was 11 or 12, he'd, you know, let me take a couple of extra ones. So that's how it started. So what were the big tunes in that stack? It was quite eclectic. I mean, I at an early age, I, I learned to like a lot of different genres of music. You know, that would have been the early 60s, you know, which would have been, you know, the Beatles, uh, the Motown sound, Martin Vandella's Temptations, Four Tops. You know, I got into the whole uh, bubblegum stuff, the Buckinghams, you know, Gary Puckett. I mean, the Turtles. Sam and Dave, just, you know, and even I uh, was a lot of influence in Latin music in the house. So, I mean, if you looked at my pile of records at the end of the week, it'd just be a mix of stuff that I thought was good. So, obviously, you had a lot of records. So, when did you start playing them? Was it in your father's bar? Was that right. the original start? Yeah, um, I don't remember what year it was, but uh, my father and his brother partnered to open up a bar in uh, New Jersey in Jersey City, and uh, they had a jukebox and the people would feed these quarters into. And 
jukeboxes back then didn't belong to the bar. They belonged to like a company that would put them in there and, and they'd split it with the bar, whatever the percentage was. And uh, what they used to do is they used to take red nail polish and mark the quarters. So any quarters that had a red nail polish, they'd come back to the bar because those were bar quarters just to keep the music going when people didn't put money in. And ended up that the jukebox wasn't really making any money and they took it out. And one day my father said, listen, uh, he says, why don't you just bring your little record player downstairs, just play some music in the background, you know, kind of like music for people to get drunk by. You know, so I bought my uh, little box record player down, you know, with the little 45 spindle and I'd stack them up and, you know, I'd just be playing some music for an hour or two. And um, every interview I've read that mentions your parents, um, the same word keeps coming up again, hardworking. Were they hardworking and how did that manifest itself? <laughs> Well, I mean, my parents were from Puerto Rico and moved to the United States. So, um, you know, their English wasn't very great. You know, my father was a factory worker for probably 40 years. And my mother was a uh, like a keyboard operator at the electric company. And, you know, they struggled for me and my sister. And, you know, every day morning went to work, came home at night. You know, my mother would cook. We'd have some rice and beans and watch TV and that was it. So not much going out, you know, very kind of... I tell a lot of people, I says, you know, funny that I'm in this business, but I'm pretty loner and kind of quiet. But as far as I can remember, we never had a vacation. We never went to a movie. We never went out to dinner. You know, we never did any of those things. You know, if we went to the beach, it was like once in a, in a blue moon. You know, my parents, you know, all they did their whole lives was just save every penny they ever made. You know, me and my sister were pretty deprived. You know, I tell people, I says, I don't swear. What do you mean? So I never went to the beach. You know, vacations, I never take a vacation. I said, well, I never had one when I was a kid. You know, vacation with me was going to the park playing basketball. So obviously you were DJing, but then you eventually began to edit records. Right. What was the first record that you edited? <laughs> well, I always, it goes down that the, the record that, launched my career was Eddie Kendrick's Date with the Rain. When I started DJing, for some reason, I took to that record. It was a great record, but it was only two minutes and 32 seconds long. I mean, it finished before it played. And I used to always say, God, I wish I could make this longer. You know, back in the early days, you really weren't mixing, and so you were just playing records. I mean, how I came about doing it, I'll never know, but I got a cassette player, and I somehow, I figured out how to hit the pause button just right so that it would start recording something else. And and I made this five and a half minute version of Date with the Rain. And that kind of inspired me to now take other short records and try to figure out what I can do. And I guess, you know, what year are we talking here? Probably the early 70s. Yeah. So everything, more or less, you know, is going to be short singles, you know, 45 right. album tracks. So there was a very clear need to do that. Had you seen anyone else edit records in this way or had you even heard well, when, of it? When I progressed past those first few records, the other issue was when I started DJing was how am I going to play them, you know, at these little bars that I was playing at that didn't really have a lot of equipment. And I searched out a place in Manhattan called Sunshine Sound that they used to make acetates, you know, plates, you know, of this stuff. So one day I ventured into Manhattan and had wood made. And during the course of the time there, there was people like Francois K uh, was doing plates. There's a guy not very known by a lot of people. His name was Jay Negron, you know, who was the guy who did a real famous play called Hollywood. And by virtue of going there and getting all these things done, the building that Sunshine Sound was housed in was also the home of Randy Muller from Brass Construction and, ironically, Patrick Adams and Greg Carmichael and a few other labels. And all these labels used to get their plates done up there. And, you know, the story goes from the guy who owns it, Frank, was that Patrick and Greg came up to, you know, to press, you know, some acetate and you know, heard something I was doing. He says, oh, this guy, John Morales, doing these hot plates all the DJs are buying. You know, and he says, oh, well, you know, we're doing this record, you know, send them downstairs. So I went in one day and Frank says, uh, go down to the seventh floor 
I think it was where Red Greg was. He says, go see Greg. So I think they re- they want you to really do a real record. So I went down, and Greg was a white-haired, albino kind of Jamaican guy with a heavy accent. He says, John, he says, he says, we want you to do a record. And I says, you know, I'm excited. You know, I'm like, all right, cool, you know. He says, meet us on Saturday, NOLA Studios, 57th Street, 4 a.m. I'm like, 4 a.m.? Yeah, well, it came to find out that at that hour of the morning, this was the cheapest studio rates. So that morning, I walked into the studio, and as soon as I walked in, I'll never forget the moment. It was like 1978. Patrick Adams was sitting on the left. This uh, engineer called Peter Jocks was sitting there. Greg was off to the side, and on the other side of the glass was Jocelyn Brown, and she was singing Caught Up in a One Night Love Affair. And it's probably important to mention at this stage, Jocelyn Brown wasn't famous. This was one of her first no, records? this was her first record as a solo. You know, I've known Jocelyn for over 40 years, and it's ironic that that day was the first time that I did like a real, real mix, and it was her first single as an artist. And could you tell even, you know, from that first session the star quality of Jocelyn Brown? Was it was it apparent or not so clear at that stage? No, no. Well, you could definitely tell. I mean, I was in awe. I, I didn't know anybody in the room. You know, I was just off the street, you know, just thrown into this situation, sitting there through the whole session, listening to Jocelyn sing all the lead vocals and stuff. And then, you know, having her at the end, you know, when she came out, we got introduced and, you know, Greg and Patrick said, oh, yes, yeah, is John Ross. He's going to do the, the disco mix. I'll never forget this moment. There's a place in the record where her voice cracks. You know, she goes, I'm God, out, you know. <laughs> and the one thing she said, she said, Morales, you better not use that part, you know, and ended up using the part because it ended up being a very exciting moment in the record, you know, which is something we always talk about. But that, that was the beginning. From there, I just... Never let Greg and Patrick go for the next four and a half years. So that's quite an amazing jump from, you know, a kid just making his own versions of tracks to suddenly being thrust into this studio environment, working with Patrick Adams and Greg Carmichael, probably two of the biggest producers of that era. Would that be right? I mean, Patrick and Greg were on the cutting edge of the dance music in the the 70s and the 80s. I think most people that know... uh, the disco and the boogie stuff are very familiar with Patrick's, you know, Cloud Nine and Atmosphere Strut and, you know, Universal Robot Band and Bumblebee Unlimited and all the stuff that Patrick was doing. But just to premise that, I was a disgruntled guitar player before, so I had a little bit of experience with music, but that was the first time that I was actually, even though I never got paid, I was hired to come in and do the mix. So at that time, you was beginning this career as a mixer. Was was the mixer something that was sought after nowadays? Was was the remixer a, a person that was famous back then in the in the mid seventies? Or when I was doing the mix, there were very few of us that were doing it uh, that I was aware of. At the time, I was aware of people like Tom Moulton, Walter Givens, Jim Burgess, some of those guys. I'm not. Totally sure when Francois jumped in, but Francois was right there in the beginning, along with Larry Levan and some of these guys that came in towards the late, like 79 and the early 80s. But there there wasn't an abundance of us that were doing this. Uh, What ended up happening was, you know, Tom discovered the 12-inch and the whole dance thing and the whole disco and boogie started to take on a life of its own. And people were looking to get a little bit more of what they were already listening to. And that's where the whole extended mix was coming from. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, Tom Morton obviously gave everyone longer to play records with. So that's where you guys came in, I suppose. You know, fortunately, me and Tom go back a ways. We're very good friends. You know, the whole 12-inch thing was just an accident. You know, if you ever speak to them, you know, they just ran out of, you know, dub plates at the mastering lab and they just put the record on the 12-inch and then realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, this this sounds really good. And that's how the 12-inch was born. It seems so crazy that something that's now so ubiquitous with dance music culture was an accident and, and was a new thing at one stage. Having a 12-inch was was a new idea at one stage in, in time. See, the whole thing with the, the vinyl is that the more space you have on the vinyl, the louder the record can get. It's all predetermined on the amount of time. So um, when Tom was doing the early 
12 inches, the 12 inches were much louder than a seven inch. So everybody gravitated to them, you know, especially all the DJs, you know, and it just, you know, like anything, everything starts somewhere by the idea of one person and, you know, then the mixing thing just totally went out of control, you know, because everybody who was a DJ of any notoriety was starting to get bored in because of where they were playing or who they knew and things like that. I didn't know anybody. <laughs> so just to focus in on the work you did with Patrick and Greg, can you just name some of the tracks that you subsequently made with them? You know, because there's, um, there's some famous ones, of course. Well, I worked exclusively with Greg and Patrick from 70 until 1982, probably four years. And I pretty much mixed almost everything they did or was involved. All the Inner Life stuff, Log, Bumblebee Unlimited, uh, Donna McGee. I mean, it's just endless the amount of records that I was involved in. Unfortunately, I didn't get credited for all of them or I got the wrong credit for doing something I didn't do and didn't get credit for what I did. So... Somebody asked me last night, they said, you know, it's a shame you didn't get credit on the log album for a lot of stuff you did because I got credit on some of the 12 inches, but on the album it has me down as a recording engineer. You know, recording engineer, hand claps and, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, at the time I wasn't an engineer. You know, I was just sitting there giving my two cents on where stuff should be. So in those days, you know, I remember going up to Southsaw Records and telling the person there, you know, I really want my name on the record, you know, and they would say, well, on the next pressing, which would never come. So that's so interesting, you know, that nowadays, of course, the remixer is someone who is absolutely going to be on the record, you know, and, and perhaps might have a huge fee, perhaps more than the original artist may have got, absolutely, you know. Absolutely, yeah. So what do you think about that? You know, the, the huge changes, do you, does that ever kind of grind your gears, you know, then you think um, back, you know? You know what? I came to terms with that a while back because... I stepped out of the music game in 1993 for about 10 years. And I stepped out just as the big money was coming. I was telling somebody the other day, I said, the most we ever got paid for a remix was maybe $2,000. And that was really like pulling teeth to see some of these guys in the 90s that were making 40000 50000 to do a, a remix. And I'm like, where was I? You know, the whole concept of a mix has not really changed over the last 40 years as to what the purpose of it is. You know, the purpose of it is is to provide a more enhanced dancing experience for people that are going to clubs, you know, by virtue of where you put the breaks, how they happen, and, and what you do. Technology nowadays affords you the opportunity to be more creative in how you develop some of these ideas, where back then, you know, you were very limited in what you can do, you know, yeah, we could fly some things over and and sample things, but you know we were cutting tape and had pieces taped on the wall of where everything would go, and then we'd have to cut it together. It was a long process, and and the other thing was that you go in the studio, you'd be there from six p.m. to ten in the morning, and you had to be finished. You know, it's not like now. You know, now I have a studio in my house. I wake up, I go downstairs. If I'm not finished, I come the next day and next month and un until I feel like doing it. So, you know, now, I mean, you have more ability to get it how you want it, but it ends up losing its spontaneity of that was the feeling at that moment. Did those restrictions in some ways, like you mentioned, Chaka Khan's voice cracking, but right. that became a great part of the record. You know, do you think those limitations can sometimes help you be more creative in a, in a strange way? Well, it, it does because... Um, not that it doesn't challenge you nowadays, but back then, if you wanted to achieve something, you really had to work and try to find a way of how to do it, you know, because you may want to loop something over something. And it just, you know, in the early 70s, we didn't have samplers, you know. And when the samplers first came, I, I remember the first time I saw a sampler, it was like two seconds. And we were like, and it was like $40,000 in the studio. And they were like, don't touch it. You know, we were sampling little background parts just or a snare drum, you know. So, yeah, you know, I listen to the stuff now and, and I realize sometimes I was like, oh, God, you know, it's, I accept it because I know what it was like back then to do that. We didn't have any automation or a computer to remember what we did. We went in the studio, 
We did it at the end of the morning. We would all sit there. We would listen to it, and everybody would shake their head, and that was the record, you know. And we lived with it, and you know, hopefully, everybody loved it. So just to go back to you for a second, all this time, you know, you were working with Greg, you were obviously DJing as well. Um, what kind of spots were you DJing at during this period? Most My transition from DJing to the studio limited what I could do because of the time. And I made a conscious decision because I was mostly working in small places where, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, you'd knock on the door and a guy looked through the little window and you'd walk downstairs you know, and there'd be 50 people there drinking or whatever. So, uh, like, I grew up in the Bronx, and I played in a lot of small places. The only club in the Bronx I actually played at that was, like, a real club club was the Stardust Ballroom, which was also a place where Jellybean Benitez played. When I started to get a little bit more notoriety because of the mixes, then I got invited to do guest spots at different clubs in Manhattan, you know, whether it be Bentley's, The Limelight, Studio 54, there was a real famous club in Manhattan back then called 1018. You know, me and Sergio did the opening night there. But um, I really focused and made a decision that I wanted to be the one making the music. You know, we'd go and visit Larry at the garage with with a tape and say, you know, want to see what it sounded like, run back to the studio and, and change it. But it was just, um, you know, it was different. We could just, I couldn't just leave a mix, take it out to a club like I do now. You know, I do a mix, I take it out. I play it, I see how the, cl- the crowd reacts, where it falls, where it, you know, I go back home, I have the ability to instantly change it. You know, we, we didn't have that ability last, back in the day, but like I said, my decision was I really wanted to be engulfed in the actual making of the music. So obviously, you know, that late 70s, early 80s, New York nightlife scene is legendary and it still resonates today. What were your favorite places to kind of go out? Or did you even go out? Were you too busy with the music? I didn't go out as much as a lot of other people. My partner back then, Sergio, was more of a nightlife, limelight kind of guy. So we did go to, you know, we did go to clubs like The Garage and like uh, Better Days. There was a a bunch of them, uh, Bentley's. We worked at a studio called Blank Tapes, and the limelight was actually on the corner, like a, a minute walk. So we'd occasionally go in there. There was the clubs like The Saint. There was there was just a lot of places we would go to, but I wasn't the guy I am now. See, now I'll go and I'll hang out because I'm playing a lot, and I do it to get educated on music, which is really important. But back then, you was just more focused on... The music itself. I was more focused on making the music because you have to realize it was like all new to me. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, I was literally sitting in people's laps in the studio. I was there whether I needed to be there or didn't need to be there because I just, you know, every session I would, when, when's the next one? Tomorrow at six. Okay, well, no, you don't have to be here. We're just, you know, doing some overdubs. No, that's okay. And I would go because I wanted to learn I wanted to learn every aspect of it. And I mean, the person I learned like most of my engineering from was a guy called Bob Blank. So there was three engineers at Blank Tapes, which is Bob, uh, Butch Jones, and Joe Arlotta. And I think it's important to to mention actually, because I, I assume a lot of the people listening to this might not know the importance of Blank Tape Studio. It was, right. you know, it, it was obviously a hugely important New York recording studio. Everyone from Sun Ra to you know, a whole bunch of people recorded Well, Arthur there. Russell, yeah. I mean, Randy Muller, Brass Construction, all, all the South Soul stuff was there. Larry did most of his mixes there in the early days before he moved to Sigma. A lot of the Casablanca was stuff there. Bob, I mean, not to give him a big shout out, but, you know, Bob was very influential in, in the engineering of many, many big, big records in the 70s and late 80s, you know, that, that came out of... Uh, New York before a lot of the other kind of shishi studios like Unique and Quad and Electric Lady kind of started Sigma when they opened up Sigma in New York, started doing dance records. You know, Blank Tapes was already, you know, we did music there. We did all the inner life stuff, all the log stuff. I mean, Class Action Weekend was done there. It's like, I mean, I can't even tell you all the records that were there, all the South Soul Orchestra, Joe Batan. I mean, classic just, after classic. Yeah, Sky. 
uh, brass construction. I mean, it's just like even Miami Sound Machine, you know, did their stuff there. A lot of people, it was a big studio. So to hang out in such a place like that, that was almost like the center of the disco world, it couldn't have been a better place to really learn your craft. No, I mean, Madonna did her first records there with Mark Hamans, right in Studio A. I was in Studio C. They were doing everybody and all those records. We walked down to the end of the hall. We didn't, you know, who is it? Oh, some girl named Madonna. Oh, okay. You know, listen, eh, sounds all right. And we go back and do what we were doing, you know? It was interesting and it was a good place to be. I mean, it was a good era. Those late 70s to the early 80s, if you were had the ability to be in that environment, I mean, I'm like so grateful and lucky that I was there to experience all these people. I mean, Ashford M. Simpson, Kashif, all these like big producers cutting their teeth in these places, cutting tracks. And me, I'm just sitting in the back of the room, just looking over everyone's shoulder and listening to the ideas. I mean, I can't tell you how many sessions I sat literally on the same bench with Leroy Burgess as he's playing keyboard parts and coming up with ideas for songs like Barely Breaking Even and Mainline and and just a lot of that stuff that we were part of, you know? You know, I Know You Will and all these songs. I mean, I, I sat there, my input, my ideas, my two cents, you know, was part of it all. And now I'm like, you know, I sit at home and I don't have those people in the room. You know, when a tune is banging, you know, he was like, yeah, 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 that, that's it, you know? And the bass plays like just doing his thing, you know? Now you sit at home on your computer and you don't have anybody to really bounce off and inspire and just kind of motivate you, whether you're a musician or an engineer or somebody, you know, that you're creating this all yourself. And most people now creating songs out of two seconds of music, you know, so it kind of loses that, that vibe, you know, people always tell me, how come you don't quantize your mixes or do this or that? For me, it takes a little bit of that magic away of just that looseness of, you know, maybe the guitar player was a little late in that section, you know, but it worked, you know, now everything's like boom, 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 boom. You know, it's like the other night when I did, the, I played the Boiler Room, I played a track by uh, Destination, Move On Up. That track varies like 10 beats per minute, you know, especially when it comes into the break where the timbales and everything go crazy. You know, as a DJ, it's a freaking nightmare, you know, to try to get in and out of that record, you know, but... A new age DJ, if he's playing that record, 99 out of 100, he's gone and quantized and make sure that it's easier for him. Just to talk about that point for a second, the kind of looseness of disco, you know, I assume a lot of your contemporaries do try and quantize things, you know. Is that something that you consciously try not to do? When I was doing my Eminem mix compilations, a couple of guys approached me and said, you know, if you quantize the tracks, you know, some of the guys may play some of these that are hard to mix. You know, when I thought about it for a minute, when I did Eminem Volume 3, I quantized a couple of them, and then I just sat back and I just thought about it one day, and I said, you know what? I says, if they want to quantize it, let them quantize it. You know, I'm going to mix what's there, use the energy that was created by the band. You know, not that um, a creative remixer nowadays in a quantized track is not going to be able to get something really good out of it. I mean, you got some guys now, you know, like uh, Joey Negro and Dimitri that, that have done some really good stuff with classics. And I mean, they're quantized, but they still have been able to to create a really good energy in their mixes, you know, with kind of without losing, you know, the, the classic feel. But those are exceptions to the rule. So just to go back to you for a second, we briefly mentioned Sergio, who was your partner in Eminem Mixes. Right. Obviously, that was a huge turning point in your career. How did you originally meet Sergio? I met Sergio at a radio station in New York called WBLS. I think it was 1981. Frankie Crocker was the big DJ in New York, and he was a frequent visitor of the Paradise Garage, and, and he came about the idea of doing a, like a dance show on the radio. So every Friday night from, I think it was 11 to 4, 12 to 4, he had the WBLS mix show, and they'd get a lot of DJs to do mixtapes. So um, I started to do mixtapes, and you know, by virtue of the fact that I had some records 
under my belt, I was able to go up to the station and I met Sergio, who at the time was Frankie's assistant program director. And I said, listen, I got these tapes, you know, and he said, well, leave them, you know, we'll see. So they ended up liking the stuff that I was doing and I started getting like regular slots on the radio. And one day Sergio said, you know, he says, he says, I'd like to see how you guys do the mixes, you know, and he was a really nice guy. So I said, well, if you want, you know, such and such a day, you know, I'm going to be at Blank Tapes. Just come down and hang out and and check what, you know, how it is. So a couple of, um, he came down a couple of times, was really, you know, really, really good. And the first mix that we actually did together was uh, Instant Funk's No Stopping That Rockin'. That was the first thing we did. And we did that. And then that one night we just said, you know what, Morales, Munzabai, it's called the Eminem Mix, you know. And that's where it was born. And subsequently, there was rather a lot of mixes you did together. I've got the figure of 650. Yeah, that well, that's, that's where I stopped. And and I'm really upset that I stopped because I'm good with stuff like that. I mean, my discography, I have it at home every day where we were, what we did. And for, for some reason, I kind of stopped and I never picked it back up. But yeah, we we were really busy. Yeah, I've got some of the names of the artists you mixed. So we've got Jocelyn Brown, The Temptations, Tina Turner, The Rolling Stones, Spano Ballet, Aretha Franklin, Ashland Simpson, Hall and Oates, Candy Statham. That's just to name some. <laughs> well, those are just the big names, you yeah. know. But then you have, you know, the Leroy Burgesses, the Universal Robot Band, you know, the, the First Choice, you know, the kind of underground stuff which we were kind of more known for. You know, Class Action Weekend was a big record for us, you know, so um, I hate to use this term, the poor man's remixer, but um, we were accessible to everybody. You know, I always told people, I says, I'll never get rich, but I'll always work on great records. We made a conscious decision to never price ourselves out of an opportunity to work on a good tune where, you know, some people would say, well, we can't get so-and-so because it's going to be too much money and they'll miss out on a great track. You know, people say, well, try John and Sergio, maybe they'll do it, you know. So it wasn't always the case, but we, if we liked the record, you know, if the guy didn't have any money, we would do it, you know. It was like, okay, it's fine, you know. So you always let the record basically make the decision more than money. Yeah, it's always, you know, for me, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you speak to, it's always been about the music. You know, the music has always guided the decisions that I've made. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into my own pocket to do something because I wanted to make sure that it was right. Absolutely. One interesting thing that, you know, obviously a lot of these sessions, you would then take the, the master tapes and then make your own versions of them. Right. So how much material would be left over from these sessions? Well, what would happen is, because we were going to tape back in the day, we would just run off ideas. We'd start the tape from the beginning, and we would just run off ideas, drop in the bass, the guitar, the vocals, or whatever in different sections, and just record it all. And sometimes we'd have three or four hours worth of material on one song. And I would just go home and listen to it, and cut, and use a grease pencil, mark what it was, and I'd tape it on the wall and put them in order, well, I was doing most all the editing, so we would I would assemble it all. But um, you know, nowadays, you know, you cut, you paste, you put in the clipboard, and it's there. You know, because that's the fascinating thing for me is that you know, it seems sometimes when I listen to your mixes, some of the new ones, it's almost like you're rewriting history. There's bits of the record that were never on the original thing. It's almost sadly some of these musicians have passed away, but you, it's almost like you're kind of recreating parts of the, of the song that were never there. I mean, to, to just give you a little bit of insight, but this is how I got back into this whole thing again, was because I'm the so-called pack rat and I had all these tapes in my garage, I was starting to get calls from people who were trying to reissue some of these songs. And they would say, call John Morales, he's got the tapes. You know, because a lot of people would, you know, revert to have to copy the vinyl and you'd hear... <laughs> You know, you hear the record skipping. You know, the thing with uh, my compilations on BBE, you know, all came a part of um, compilations that people like DJ Spinner and Dimitri were doing for BBE where they were using mixes from Eminem. You know, whether it was Ronnie Dyson, It's All Over Your Face, or Sandy Kerr's Thug Rock, or The Winans, Let My People Go. 
their licensing guy was constantly calling me saying, John, do you have the tape for the Winans? I said, yeah, not only do I have the tape, but I got three other unreleased versions plus outtakes. Oh, great. And one day, just out of the blue, I said to him, I said, you guys need to do a John Morales compilation. I have all this stuff just sitting here. At versions of all the inner life stuff, all the log stuff that was never released, the demos. And he said, well, let me talk to Peter. And like a few days later, he came back. He said, Peter said, just, you know, give me a track list and see what happened. And, and the first one happened real quick because the first one, Eminem Volume 1, if I remember well, didn't have any re-remixes. It was all just the early obscure Eminem catalog and a lot of my pre-Eminem stuff from the early uh, mid-70s and you know all that came about just from coincidence if anyone was wondering where Dimitri got all those kind of unreleased versions it was from John Morales basically well the ones that he used for his night dubbing and some of his other early BB compilations were just stuff that I would send to them they would you know they would want high quality copies of the tracks they wanted so so is it tricky to approach something like that? You know, this, these old reference tapes that you have when you re-edit them for modern remixes, is it a strange feeling, you know, for an artist, you know, might have passed a long time away? Is that kind of an odd sensation to be working with such material it, like that? See, for me, the biggest honor that I've ever gotten were from people like Patrick and Kenny Gamble, Gamble Huff, of saying, I trust you with my stuff because I know that you will respect it. You know, my approach to working with the classics, or has been so far in all these years, is I don't want to make it something it's not. It's already a great record. So I've been using this quote lately, which is, I just want to take it through a car wash. I want to take it through, get it polished, maybe put a new set of tires on it, you know, maybe put a bow, you know, a little bobbing dog head in the back seat or something, you know, just change it enough where the people that always loved it will readdress it again. Just go back to it, you know, and say, you know what, that's a great record. I never heard that part. You know, there's stuff in uh, the Club Motown compilation and some of the mixes, you know, the Thelma Houston and the Tina Marie, where I found vocals and things that were on the tape that they never used. So I've made a point of using those great bits to heighten the experience of what was always a great record. So without mutilating and changing it, you know, everything, you know, it's like, I'm not going to knock the guys that do something, but it's, you can't call Tina Marie's I Need Your Lovin', I Need Your Lovin' if the guy's not going to use any vocals on it. I mean, you know, what is it then? You know, some guy came up with a beat and put the bass on it and, you know, that's a whole different animal. I don't do that. Is it interesting or almost a bit of a conflict for you because, you know, you were around in the seventies, you know, working with, you know, Patrick and, and the likes of that when who were almost making music that was quite futuristic. And now a lot of the music that perhaps you play disco music is just in some way kind of revising that music. You know, it's, it's definitely not futuristic. Is, is that kind of a little bit of a conflict? No, it's not a conflict. I mean, it, it just goes to show how great the music was to begin with because I never really classified as disco music. I just call it, dance music sometimes i hate that little pigeonhole i think we talked about it once before the disco word but you know i just call it dance music and you know for me there's no bigger excitement than walking a club and seeing another big name dj you know whether it's the masters at work and kenny and louie or dj span of charisma playing a classic in one of their big house sets and just seeing it rock a crowd. You know, I mean, I, I did a thing with Kerry Chandler up in Leeds at the warehouse where he dropped the boss, a mix of mine of the boss. And the place just went out of control. And you just kind of just sit back and you just, you shake your head and you're like, yeah, still works. <laughs> you know, and that's a good feeling, you know. And I don't know how many of today's tracks are going to be able to do that. It's a great point. I would also say that you do have a get-out-of-jail-free card in so much that you're playing new versions of these tracks that are often never completely new parts to, to the general public as well. So that does make a difference in my mind. It, it does make a little difference, but it's still the same song. You know, I do, as a point, try to beef up and make them sound a little fatter 
have a little bit more punch than the originals did so that they can. And I do that specifically for them to be able to stand up to the stuff that the guys are playing nowadays. So at least it affords them the opportunity if they want to play the track that they'll know, you know, if I play this Tina Marie track or this Tata Vega track up against a Masters at Work track, it's going to hold its own sound wise. It's still the same song. You know, but sound quality-wise, it stands up to it. And that, for me, I think is really important nowadays. So just briefly, you know, you had great success in, in the 80s. But as it turned to the 90s, it seems like your career slowed down somewhat. Why do you think that was? Was it just changing taste? Were people moving away from soulful sounds? You know what? I, I think what happened was part of being naive. We were really, really on a good roll between 82 to like 87, right around 88, so 87, 88, music started to change. You know, you had the introduction of genres like hip hop and rap and stuff, which started to become a little bit more mainstream. You know, disco started to be like a really bad word and things were changing. And me and Sergio kind of looked at it and said, where do we go? And our decision was, let's stay pat. It's going to pass by. And it didn't pass by. And to be honest, you know, when, you know, Sergio passed away in 90 and I, I did a bunch more stuff through 93 and I kind of just got to a point where I was just kind of, I just got burnt out. I just, you know, those days were rough, you know, so rough on your body, rough on your mind. You know, I got sick in 93, I developed a heart condition. And I was kind of just like, that's it. The train, train reached the last stop. I'm getting off, you know. So I stopped in 93 and I kind of took care of my health and, you know, just kind of looked back at the last 15 or 20 years of what I'd done. I find it interesting, though, that um, you eventually, you know, in a period where you wasn't working so publicly on music, you actually worked for um, Cubase for a while. For Steinberg, yeah. yeah. I was still, you know, it's like if you're in, in music and are obsessed and have it as a passion, it's always dwelling inside of you somewhere. So even though I wasn't making music, I think I wanted to be close enough that I would say, and I was always a real tech head, so I wanted to be on the cutting edge. You know, we were the first one using, you know, digital recording and MIDI and stuff like that. You know, so when, you know, the software started coming, you know, I had a friend of mine uh, in New York that worked at Sam Ash, and he says, you know, there's this, and I actually was doing stuff with a company which is the one that preceded Logic, which was a company out of Germany called C-Lab. It was a program called Notator, which is actually what launched Logic. And I was doing that, and then I was approached by Steinberg. said, you know, do you want to be like our guy in New York, you know? I was like, all right. So I ended up, I was the, like the East Coast rep for like Steinberg and for Atari computers. So I was still in the music, but I, I wasn't. You know, so it was kind of weird, you know, because, you know, I was at this high level of mixing and notoriety, but I never made the money that came along with it. You know, so it's, I'm not saying that I was broken, destitute. I wasn't that bad, but I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I spent a couple of nights in an apartment where the lights were out because I didn't pay the electric or something. You know, and you sit back and you realize, you know, I gave my soul to music, you know, it's like when the guy says, well, you know, do you want something? He said, no, no, it's okay. You know, I just love the music. You know, it's, you know, now you realize, I, you know, I should have took that, you know, 100 bucks and, you know, instead of spending your own 20 bucks to take a cab home. But I don't regret anything I've ever done. You know, the music's always given me something, you know, so... Well, yeah, I was just about to say that, you know, obviously a big turning point must have been the BBA compilation that we took, we've already talked about that came out in 2009. Right. But in my mind, you know, I think that very much reminded people of what you'd done. You know, I'm a big disco fan, but, you know, I knew the Eminem name, but I didn't realize you'd done all of this work. And I think that was true for a lot of other people that came across that compilation. It's well, it's like, a, yeah, it's been important. You know, one of the key things when I first was doing the compilation for BB was I had never, you know, when the internet started happening and I had never Googled my name. And one day I was sitting at the computer and I Googled my name and saw all this stuff come up. And it made me realize that I had made a pretty considerable contribution to dance music. And I kind of looked at it and I said, you know what? 
I got I to let people know that I did this stuff. You know, I'm the guy. You know, so, you know, but I got to say, my, my dear friend Paul Simpson is the one that is responsible for me getting back into remixing. How did he make that come around? When I did the first compilation for BB, I just wanted the music out because it was sitting on my shelf for all these years, all these unreleased versions. And one day, Paul calls me and he says, listen, he says, you still got your equipment. I says, yeah, it's in the garage and I got my computer and stuff. He says, I got a mix to do. I, got a, I don't have any place to do it. You know, could, could we do it? So I asked him what it was and it was Marvin Gaye's Funky Space Reincarnation. Great track. And I was like, yeah, I think we could do that. So I came to my house. We started doing it. And it just, it started that, you know, it's like putting gasoline on a simmering fire that's about to go out. And I just started to get into it. And one thing led to the other. It was just, it was just a change of events. It just was meant, I'm meant to be where I'm at. You know, I'm meant to be doing this. You know, Paul's mother had an accident. He had to go to Florida. I had to do the mix by myself, at which point he realized that he had to introduce me to the label. So happened that the head of the label lived like 15 minutes from my house, came to my house one night, and we sat over dinner, and he said, you know what? He says, I got something for you. And I was like, well, he says, I want you to do the Marvin's In Our Lifetime album. You know, complete album. So I did that. And once I did that, that was it. And it must be so crazy that, you know, you've done the Marvin album, which is obviously a Motown thing, but you've done a whole compilation for Motown now, which is strangely full circle because you've done so much work with them back in the day. Did they even ask you to be in the A&R, head of A&R for Motown at one point well, back see, in the day? Ironically, back in 84... Motown had approached us. Benny Medina, who was at Motown at the time, head of a and approached us and asked us if we'd like to head up the New York branch. They were going to start a dance department. And me and Sergio spoke about it. And we decided that because I was traveling and I was doing a lot of stuff, I said, well, why don't you take the, you do it. We'll still get the work. So what ended up happening was Sergio was the East Coast a and and we were like the in-house mix team. And so this is how we ended up mixing Treat It Like a Lady and Night Shift and The Barge and the Daz Band and Vanny, all those Motown records between 84 and 87 that were successful were things that we did. Coming forward 25 years, you know, about seven years ago, I had approached Motown and said, listen, I want to do this compilation because we did all this stuff. I mean, there was a lot of non-successful and a lot of stuff that wasn't released that we did. I said, I could do an Eminem Does Motown compilation. No, nah, no, nah, we're not interested. You know, it's 80s, disco, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just kept at it. And by virtue of my relationship with them and doing all this stuff that I was doing, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff nobody even, I mean, I've mixed... James Brown Live at the Apollo. I've done the Trouble Man soundtrack. I've done a lot of non-dance stuff. I mean, through the course of my education at Blank Tapes, I turned into a, what I think is a pretty good engineer. So I've been called to mix a lot of records that have nothing to do with dance music purely because I can make stuff sound good. So I, I kept pushing that. A few years ago, I had the pleasure of doing Tina Marie's Mix of I Need Your Lovin'. After she passed away, which was going to be given away as a bonus for her beautiful CD. And it was a short version of the mix that I did. And it just, it went viral. And everybody was like, I got to have this, you know. And I was like, well, what do you want to do? Said, well, it's, you know, we'll do something one day. One, you know. And I, I know how this is, you know. I've sat on stuff for years just waiting. And about... Two and a half years ago, in my big revival, I came to the UK and I went to Universal here. And I pitched the idea to the guy who's the head of A&R here, uh, Johnny Chandler. And I said, listen, I got this idea. It was actually, it was called Motown 80s. There was a criteria, it was all 80s Motown, released on 12-inch, original long versions on CD and digital, something 
that hasn't happened. They've had some of the tracks here and there, but not all of them. And the guy was like, sounds like a great idea, you know, blah, blah, blah. I went home. I put the whole thing together. I did everything. I put them on CDs. I packaged it. I made a label. I bought it in, put it on his desk. I said, here it is. It's done. You know, all you have to do is just go with it. Okay, well, you know, being the big company that it is, it's got to go to this guy and that guy and this guy. And for the first two years, people just thought it didn't have any merit or value. And this year, you know, I never stopped pushing it. I went up and he says, I think I think we're going to do it this time, you know. And, you know, along with my profile getting bigger and the success of the Eminem mixes, you know, the sales department and stuff kind of figured, I said, you know, I'm doing this for free. I just want this stuff out. I want people to hear the music, you know, because ideally I'm not a nearsighted person. I, I'm looking down the road. You know, I said, I just need to get it out. If I can get it out, I know that I'll make an effort to make sure that it happens so that we can do it with other stuff that's up there and maybe spawn other labels like Sony and Epic or whoever to say, wait a minute, you know, this 80s music or 90s music, you know, we could do something with this again. It's just sitting on the shelf gathering dust. I used to tell Universal all the time, I says, you know, just walking over money in the street is just sitting there. You know, all you have to do is just get a server online and just throw it up there. People are going to buy it. People love this stuff. You know, not in... You know, it's not EDM. You know, we're not playing in a stadium for 65,000 people off their head. You know, but the people that we play for are people that, that buy music. So anyway, that's how it came about. I ended up doing five new mixes for it. You know, it came out last week. I'm excited. You know, I went to number one on Amazon's disco charts. You know, now, is, you know, if it sells, then, you know, we move forward and, you know, it'll be a good thing. I can't believe you mixed James Brown live at the Apollo. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've. Oh, you have no idea. I've mixed tons of stuff. Can you name some of the stuff that we wouldn't know then? Because <clears throat> it's it's like um, I'll give you an example. It's been a lot of Motown. I did the Trouble Man soundtrack theme from Trouble Man. Yeah. You know, which is one of the biggest classic hip hop loops of all time. You know, and it could conceivably be one of the first times that a loop in a record was ever used because it was an actual loop that Marvin used in that record. Yeah. And it's a real shit loop, but it worked, you know? So I did that. I did it in our lifetime. I've done a few Tina Marie albums. I did Rare Tea. I mixed all her original demos that were produced by Barry Gordy, just her on acoustic guitar, you know, simple stuff. I mean, nowadays I've done a lot of stuff for the new guys. You know, I've done a lot of house stuff, you know, for DJ Spen and Kenny Dope and Odyssey. And I've just done some new stuff. Imagination's doing a new album. They've recut all their big hits, you know, for Yam Who, you know, and I've just mixed uh, Just an Illusion, you know, which is really, really good. I've just finished an album for a guy called Mayor Hawthorne. You know, that was 12 tracks and I did Level 42. I produced Level 42, you know, early in the year, you know, with Mark King. So... I've done a lot of stuff. I'm just, I never was the guy that would stand on the top of the hill and pound my chest. I mean, I'm doing it a little bit nowadays, you know, because it's a necessity because of the nature of the business now. But I'm just happy just doing what I love. I think Marvin Gaye and um, James Brown deserve a little bit of chest pounding, you know, if, yeah. if, if anything. Or Barry White. You know, yeah. I've done Barry White. I've done Teddy Pendergrass. I've, I mean, I, I've been blessed. I mean, I, yeah. I've mixed a track Marvin Gaye's I Want You. I mean, I sit in my studio sometimes and I'm listening to what I'm doing and I just, I look up and I'm like, I'm not worthy. I know it's probably tough and probably impossible, but if you had to pick one artist that, you know, you've mixed or worked with that was perhaps your favorite or that left the biggest impression on you, who would that be? That's a hard one because I have different artists that represent different things. I mean, Marvin, for just the sheer beauty of how he assembled songs. See, I, I look at music in three dimension. You know, for me, it's a lot more than what you hear. You know, it's, it's how it was made. It's just the, the little nuances of it. 
I mean, for me, still one of my favorite artists, and I haven't seen her in a couple of years, Jocelyn Brown, just because when we did some of the Inner Life records, sometimes in the, it was just me and her in the studio. I didn't know what I was doing. I knew what, when the red button was on, it was recording, you know, and I knew where zero was, you know, and a lot of those tracks in like Inner Life 1 was just Jocelyn at a piano playing and me just recording it. And we developed a really good bond. And, and there came a time when I used to tell Jocelyn, I said, you know what? If I am mixing your records, you ain't getting a hit, you know? And even though she had a few, you know, after what we did, but, you know, a lot of the stuff we did, you know, Caught Up, Somebody Else's Guy, Ain't No Mountain. I mean, a lot of those records that, that we did have gone on to be staples in, in dance music. I mean, Ashford and Simpson. I mean, I've been blessed by the artists that I've worked with, you know. it's And each one has a certain character or magic that they bring to something. I mean, one of my other favorite people is, is Randy Muller. Randy Muller, don't even get me started on Randy Muller. Randy Muller is one of the most talented people. People have no idea what Randy does. You know, they hear Randy Muller, produces, play. I mean, the man is just incredible songwriter, producer. I mean, he just, between Sky and Brass Construction, he put out an album last year uh, called Soul Biscuits, the Brooklyn Soul Biscuits, that he'd been working on forever. I mean, if anybody's into, like, that brass construction kind of New York kind of funk, pick up that album because that's about as old school as it gets. But it's, it's a testament to the ability of somebody that I just I, – I have my – and again, another guy that I sat next to back in the day just watching what he was doing. He was, you know, one of the blank tapes people, you know. You know, it's been a big, long career, many, many great moments. But if you had to pick one mix that you've done that you're most proud of that, you know, perhaps epitomizes the Eminem sound, what would that be? Okay, let me just answer this by telling you what comprises an Eminem mix. Most people, if they hear something that I've done, can distinguish it and a lot of people say it's because of my heritage and my you know Spanish background and stuff but most Eminem mixes are very percussive they're very rhythmical so there's two elements to the Eminem mix there's the element of the rhythm and the element of just what I call suspended animation which is just dropping stuff out and just you know I don't say that we invented the dub mix but we were right there in the forefront of the whole concept of taking the vocals out and just a bit, you know, just the whole creative aspect of it. You know, certainly one of the first dub disco mixes, perhaps. Right. I, I know that we were right there, and I was right there in the beginning with the whole concept of, you know, the instrumental B sides and the acapellas and the acapella dubs. You know, and it's like. People ask me, I said, go listen to the old records, pull them out, and see how many of them have an acapella on them. I mean, look at Class Action Weekend. I forget, that was uh, 81. They had an acapella dub on it. Somebody else's guy. I mean, I later released it, but I had a version of Caught Up in a One Night Love Affair that's an instrumental with some vocals in it. You know, that was 1978. You know, I have some earlier Bumblebee Unlimited stuff. You know, Ladybug. You know, so I got stuff on my shelf. You know, I could say, here's the tape, you know. I was doing that back then, you know. They just didn't understand it. But, you know, that's the Eminem mix. Very percussive, you know, very rhythmical, a lot of breaks. For some people, a bit too long. And I have to admit, sometimes I just don't know when the record ends. You know, I always figure if I can get it in under 10 minutes, I've done, I've done good. You know, when they asked me for the Club Motown to do some radio edits for like five minutes, I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, the Tina Marie 12 inch is 13 minutes. How, what seven minutes am I going to shave off? You know, so it becomes hard, but I think that the Eminem stamp is enough that it's distinguishable when somebody hears something that we've done or, you know, that I've done. So, favorite mix then? Favorite mix. Right now, if I have my feet to the fire, I have to say one of my favorite mixes is the mix suite I did for Marvin Gaye's I Want You, which there was a lot of different elements. There was an acapella dub mix. There was an instrumental. Everyone had a different element. 
and excitement. And another reason that stands out for me because uh, guy David Ritz, who wrote uh, Marvin's biography, Divided Soul, wrote me a letter after he heard all this stuff. And even Leon Ware, his wife called me, said Leon was in tears when he heard the mixes, you know, to say that I captured the essence of what they recorded in a way that they, they could never envisioned. So that for me, you know, he said if Marvin was here, he'd, he'd kiss you, you know, I was like, I'm in, you know. So that for me, there's, there's no greater honor to have the artists just praise the work that you've done on something that they've done because that's a really hard thing to achieve. A lot of people don't like this stuff messed with and that that was another big issue in the 80s. You know, doing a mix and having an artist saying uh, they don't like the mix or, you know, how dare you. You know, I had an issue with a British band, you know, that hated something that we did that later on went on to be a big record, you know, and the guy hated the mix. Well, all I know is that Marvin Gaye's camp no more than that British band. So there we go. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> 